It's a joy to hear you sing those words and to be encouraged in the faith on this very first Sunday of 2020. It's great to be in the house of the Lord and to be with his people and to know that our God has been faithful for every year previous and we can trust him for the faithfulness that we will need him to be in the year 2020. For some of us, we don't even know what that means. It's going to be very surprising to learn what that means over the course of this year. Thankfully, we have a God who's got all the surprises in the palm of his hand. What's a surprise to you and me has been planned from before the foundation of the world for him. We have nothing to fear in that regard and incredible confidence as we walk into the year ahead to know that the Lord has us right where it is that he wants us. And he's got plans as his people to bless us and to show us his glorious grace. I hope that we really pursue that very reality in the series that we're starting today entitled For Freedom Set Free. Over the next three weeks, we're going to consider what Christian freedom really is. And one of the reasons that I've chosen this subject as a way to renew our own commitments in the gospel at the beginning of 2020 and also be reminded of what it means to be a Christian, a member of a local church, bearing witness for Christ in the world. I've chosen this subject of freedom because I think there's a tremendous amount of confusion in our own day and even conflict around what we mean when we use the word freedom. I think there's also a lot of uh, contamination in that word freedom, even among Christians, by living in North America in a country that is marked by that very word of freedom to have collapsed American ideas and notions and media projections into what is meant when Paul writes, for instance, in Galatians chapter 5, for freedom you've been set free. And we kind of hear in the back of our minds something like the Pledge of Allegiance. And the Apostle Paul has nothing like that in mind when he's thinking about freedom, nor does Jesus here in John chapter 8 when he's speaking about the truth that will set us free. And I, as I've looked, too, in talking with both friends and also watched the lives of so many of saints over the years and even historically reading upon our own time in the health of the church, recognizing that, that in, a, in a peculiar way, the perception of the church, especially in our own context, has changed dramatically over the last generation. Um, if you know history very well, and at least the way historians have memorialized the history of Christianity, you know it's often um, been considered, the faith that is, as a champion of freedom, uh, a champion of, of human dignity, a champion for human flourishing, for what's, for what's best in the world. Uh, many historians would contribute things like the Democratic Project or Free Enterprise or even the start of hospitals, the care for the poor. Um, giving a voice to the unborn. Um, those who have traditionally been marginalized, maybe restricted without freedoms, being brought into the reality of freedom. And many historians have even thought about those fruits that have kind of come in, in our own context early and even in Western uh, European countries over the last several hundred years as the fruit of the truths that are at the center of the gospel. Uh, the truths of the image of God in man, that every person has human dignity because they're shaped in the likeness of God, and thus they're due respect and they're due honor and kindness and, and doing good to your fellow man, that these things flow out of teachings like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. 
If you've grown up in the church, you're used to thinking about the church and you're used to thinking about the faith as, as that which champions a real experience of freedom. But what we've actually seen in the last generation, maybe in the last few generations, is the fact that the faith, Christian faith, and even its most precious tenets and doctrines have actually been dubbed, um, labeled, categorized as a threat to human dignity and freedom. The exact opposite has happened. Where more the religious beliefs and teachings of Christianity are, are limiting and restricting. Even as I had, very sadly, a friend of mine who left the faith a handful of years ago tell me that as he studied the Bible's teaching on human nature and human existence and experience, he drew the conclusion that it was more dehumanizing and restricting than life-giving. And he had certain categories in mind as he had shifted in his evaluation of what the gospel actually taught. It reminds me of an article by Gia Tolento who writes for the Atlantic Monthly. In the May 27, 2019 issue of this year, she wrote an article entitled Losing Religion and Finding Ecstasy in Houston. And when she says ecstasy, she means the drug ecstasy. She grew up in one of the second largest megachurches in the U.S. there in Houston. She grew up in a Bible-believing family. She had gone to worship and to church the first 15 years of her life. And then for the last 15 years of her life, she's been trying to undo those first 15. And it happened when she found the drug ecstasy. And she recognized that what Christianity had often spoken in lofty praise and in kind of high prose about the joy of being a Christian and the freedom of being a Christian and the unity and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that we all share by being a Christian, she actually found more of that in ecstasy than in the church. And she began to realize that she couldn't, she couldn't connect harmonize her experience within the body of Christ and what it taught with what she actually experienced as more life-giving and joy-giving when she was on drugs in a music rave. She writes near the end of her article, the church stood on one side of my life and what I wanted, a moral code determined by my own stinks, my own instincts on the other side of my life, as I stood in that crucible, I was in the middle trying to resolve a tension, and at some point, I just stopped being able to feel the tension. Eventually, almost without realizing it, I let one side of it go, the church side. Now, what's puzzling, I think, for some of us, if we've grown up in the church and we've, we've known the faith like the back of our hands, and it is our normal to see that expression um, show up on a page and for a, a, a person of another generation or a younger generation to evaluate the faith on those ends can be extremely unsettling. But for some of us in this room, we're thinking, that sounds awfully familiar. That sounds pretty close to where I am. That I've heard in the church over my life, the joy, the satisfaction, the contentment, the, everything that Christ offers in salvation, I don't really experience that. In fact, I feel it very restricting. Uh, it's bondage-inducing for me. I experience the faith, and I experience the church, and it's teaching the exact opposite. And maybe today, even as you're coming into the presence of the Lord, you're holding on by a thread, even your belief in the faith at all. 
Well, whether you're on the spectrum that's puzzled by someone who would write those things or whether you're on the spectrum of someone who goes, I'm right there with her and I'm close there, I think you're in the right series. Because I think we're going to be addressing both of those realities. Why is it that sometimes the freedom that's spoken of in the scriptures is not something that we existentially experience very often as believers? What might be the reason for that? And how could we regain renewal and what it means to really be free in Christ. Or if you're one who's hanging on by a thread in the Christian faith, to begin to maybe rediscover, give Christianity another shake, and say, well, maybe there is more to Christianity than the drug ecstasy, and there is something worth coming back for. As we consider those two spectrums, and as we explore, begin exploring this topic today and over the next couple of weeks, I just want to ask you, be prayerful in this. Ask the Lord to lead you into exactly what needs to be uncovered and discovered and for grace to be present in the moment where he shines his light. And pray for us as a church that the Lord would draw us together in the unity of the Christ's freedom and that 2020 would be marked by that in a way unlike it's ever been before. Let's pray to that end, even as we seek God's word. Father in heaven, we would ask you now to begin to answer that request and begin to flood our hearts and our lives with freedom as you open up our eyes to behold the wonders of your glorious gospel. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning our reading in verse 31 of John chapter 8. This is God's word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free... You will be free indeed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, you probably have read, as I have been reading, various book lists, you know, book lists of 2019, right? As we end the year and we look forward to the year ahead, and there's always a few book lists of some of my favorite writers and readers that I always have my eye on to catch good titles and things that I may have read and want to know their input on, or things I haven't read that I can put on my list for 2020. I keep a list myself, and some of you know that, and sometimes I'll let you know some things I'm reading, and sometimes I can't help but let you know because I'm so excited about what I'm reading. And a few of you, one of you in particular comes to mind, emailed me and said, hey, I'd love to have a few thoughts on some great books that you read this last year. And I sent you a few. And one of the ones that I sent as I made the list and one of the observations I made after I made the list was that I did as much rereading this year of books that I had read before as I read new books which has been a trend that's been happening in my own reading patterns over the last couple of years, in some ways becoming increasingly convinced that finding the best books and reading them over and deeply 
is maybe more important than reading so broadly in a scattershot sort of way. And so I've been narrowing my focus to some degree. And so I've re-engaged a number of books that I've just deeply loved over the years. And one of the ones that I re-engaged this year was St. Augustine's autobiography, Confessions. I know many of you in this room have read that book. And if you've not read that book, don't worry, you're not behind the curve. Uh, You likely have heard the story, at least one of the lead stories in book two of St. Augustine's Confessions. It's the the infamous story, we might say, of the pear stealing, uh, where Augustine, when he was a youth, Uh, gathered with a bunch of his hoodlum friends, and they broke into the pear orchard at, you know, outside of town, stole a bunch of pears, and had a great time uh, eating them. Now, it's an odd section in some ways in the book, because as you're reading it, and you're thinking of all the things that Augustine does later, which are a lot worse than stealing pears, he kind of camps out on this, and you wonder, why is this such an issue? But then as you read through book two, you begin to realize, oh wait, he's seeing more going on in his heart in this instance, and thus is deserving of a little more ink on the page. What Augustine was complex, what puzzled him, what perplexed him about the stealing of the pears was that as he was with his friends, as he's evaluating it years later, he's like, they weren't really great pears. And I really wasn't hungry. And yet, we did it. And as I examine it, now, years removed from it, and I consider that moment, I realize, and these are not his words, they're mine, I realize there is a hunger that was in my heart at that, at that point. But it was a hunger not of the growlings of the stomach, it was a hunger of the heart that wanted to break out, that wanted to be free. By being told that I can't go in and steal pears, Augustine recognized, I found in my heart the desire to go steal pears. Do you recognize that? Anyone ever told you you can't do something? And immediately you go, yeah, I can that, that, that little moment in your heart that kind of pop, that's what Augustine's talking about. He said he noticed, it wasn't about the pears, it wasn't even about the hunger of the, the pears. It was about, it was something I wasn't supposed to do. And because I wasn't supposed to do it, I immediately wanted to do it. And inside of that was a desire to break off from any kind of constraint to in some way, as some of us experienced our freshman year of college, we we thought this is going to be the path to freedom. This is, I'm going to exercise my freedom. There's no God nor parent that's following me in this direction. And so now I will be free in the way that I want to be free. And here's what Augustine actually finds throughout the course of confessions is that his life is littered with pain and heartache. And the path that he called freedom when he was young becomes the path that enslaves him throughout all of his life. It's the path that enslaves him throughout all of his life. Now, today, for a few minutes, I want to consider what's illustrated in Augustine's life as what's written at heart 
right here in John 8 in a few verses that Jesus speaks to us and to these Jews in this moment of ministry. And I want to do that under just two headings today. The first heading is this, the lie that we tend to believe about freedom. The lie that we tend to believe about freedom. That's point number one. And point number two is the truth that sets us free. The truth that sets us free. So number one, the lie that we tend to believe about freedom. Number two, the truth that sets us free. Now we're going to spend most of our time on this first point because I think it requires a little bit more unpacking and we've got a couple of weeks on this subject and so we'll be able to continue to explore it. So we won't turn over every rock as we walk through John 8, but we'll try to to get down the path in just the way that we need to today. As, as Jesus here speaks in John chapter 8, there's a couple of just observations I want you to notice at the beginning. He comes to them and he says, if you abide in my words, the, the Greek word there is to hold on to. If you hold on to my words, something John's going to talk a lot more about in John 15, later in his book. But if you hold on to my words, you're going to be a true disciple, a true follower. So embracing my words gives shape to how you walk, how you're going to, how you're going to follow. If you abide in my words, you're going to be a true disciple. And here's what's going to happen. As you abide in my words and you walk as a true disciple to me, the truth, you're going to come to know it. Like, like the way that we really learn truth. Like truth is not something that we simply learn one time and it's like we've got it, right? Wouldn't it be nice if it was that way? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just learn a truth in the scripture and go, got it, never will forget it. We'll operate by it every second of my life going forward. But indeed, that's not the case. We just confessed the reality of forgetfulness, didn't we? And that will be the problem. That's the leaky bucket of our hearts and of our minds that's constantly forgetting that which we've gained. And so when you abide in the words, when you stay in them, when you sit in them, when you embrace them, you hold tight to them and you walk by it, the truth kind of deepens and settles into you. It kind of, if, if, if you're, I got to grill a steak a few weeks ago and I put some wonderful marinade on it. And the longer you know it sits in that marinade, right? The more that stuff gets in, the more it abides in that marinade, the more that steak becomes a true disciple. <laughs> I think that works. The more that flavor, right, gets, gets in there, and, 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 and the more my taste buds are set free. No, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop with this. <laughs> Slow this down. What? What actually happens in, in that is, is the truth deepens kind of into the wool of our hearts. And the truth, as it deepens into the wool of our hearts, as we, we grow in Christ, guess what happens? We become increasingly free. The truth will set you free. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we're going to talk, there's a way to go through those verses in a deeper way than we're going to be able uh, to do today. What I want you to note from the beginning is, that sounds beautiful to me as I read that as a believer, but as soon as they heard it, the defenses went up. When, when a Christian starts talking about freedom in our culture, a, a lot of what happens is defenses go up. B because we hear your commands and we see your ways and 
That doesn't register to my definition of freedom. And really what Jesus is saying here is quite offensive to these Jews when they originally hear it. If you can see the way they respond, verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that we will become free? Now, you know, Jesus, now what, that is your name, right? How is it that you go off telling me a son of Abraham, about freedom? How, how, how do you imply that in some way I'm not free? That, if you can pick up the tone of the conversation, there's a fence because I'm not, we're not looking at the entirety of John 8, but it gets more combative as they go along. To the end of this passage, they want to stone him. So we know that there's defenses. We know that there's pushback to what he's describing as freedom. And some of you, if you're hearing their response just in this moment, you're saying to yourself, have they forgotten their history? <laughs> here, here they're looking at Jesus and they're going, we're the sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. And you kind of go, I kind of remember this thing called Egypt. Oh, and now that I think about it, I kind of remember this thing called Babylon. Well, and if actually, as I look at you right now, I think of this thing called Rome. <laughs> like, you know, like right now, you're not really politically free if, if that's how we're thinking about it. But of course, that's not how Jesus intends it. And actually, I don't think that's actually what they intend. I don't think it's amnesia to their history or acknowledgement that the Roman-occupied uh, Jerusalem uh, at that opportunity wasn't a real thing. I don't think it's that kind of level of deception that's here. I think what we see by their statement that we are the descendants of Abraham, we have never been enslaved, is we're getting a glimpse into how they view freedom. How they view freedom. How do they view freedom? Tied directly to their identity. We come from the line of Abraham. We come from good stock. We came through all the right channels. We went to all the right schools. We have a liberal arts degree. Of course we're free. Um, we, we've, got, we've got all the succession of a spiritual heritage. We, we've got all of this stuff that's our So How in the world would you describe us as free? They're looking at all of what is literally a spiritual lineage and heritage. And they're looking at Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all that spiritual lineage and heritage who is telling to them that they are slaves, and they're going, no, no, we're not. Here in the midst of this conversation, we're seeing them define themselves and their understanding of what freedom really is, and we're seeing it at loggerheads with what Jesus is talking about. Now, if you can, if you can see it, <laughs> these were clearly southern Jews, right? I mean, because... Spiritual heritage, lineage, place, all of the kind of values of traditional cultures, ancient cultures, who your mama was, where your daddy worked, what college you graduated from. Those are the ways traditionally, that's why I joke them being Southern Jews, of course, traditionally how Southerns get along in terms of their even the shape of the way that we think about ourselves. Um, it's, it's identity shaping for us. Now, the more that Nashville and, and Franklin have become what they are, very busy people everywhere, now here, cosmopolitan, 
it's become more Midwestern feeling, um, a little less Southern in its orientation. It's become, in some ways, like more like other parts of the country, um, which aren't about where you've been from, your place, and who you know, and what you graduate from. It's about more modern things, like your degrees, your achievements, your personal likability, your accomplishments. Um, it, it's, it's a lot of the other kinds of worldly things, uh, giving shape to that sense of, of identity. Um, and, and as we look at those things, um, that's often how we view ourselves being, if I can put it this way, free, powerful, Having options, choices. Think about it. Why is it that a parent says to a child, you need to get an education? You need to get an education. Doesn't even, doesn't even matter what your college degree is in as long as you get one. You know, that kind of talk. We need, we need to have these, th this thing. We need to reach this benchmark. There's a lot of different reasons that a parent would say that to a child. There are a lot of good reasons why one might give that advice. In fact, generally speaking, that's pretty decent advice. But what's partly in the back of a parent's mind is we want you to have opportunities. We want you to have choices. We want you to have options. We don't want you to get stuck. We don't want you to find your way down a path and get in bondage. That's, a part of the, that's part of what's actually motivating. It might be to the center of what's motivating. In fact, it might go so far back as, you got to get a job to get off my paycheck, right? It might go that direction because then I'm saddled to you and I'm feeling bondage and I need to be free, right? It may even go back that way in, into the heart. There's a number of ways in which it could go. That's the way we think about money, right? When we think about money, we might say things like, well, I want to... You know, yes, you'll know, be able to get a decent car, right? And buy my wife uh, some new shoes and, of course, give to the church. Um, with that, I want money for those, those reasons. But actually, if you just pull back a little bit from that, you know why? We're attracted to money. It gives us options. We can make choices. We can do things. If we decide to fly across country, we can fly across country. If I get a new car, we can just get a new car. We can do what we want to do. It frees us. I've been thinking about health. Because I need to think about health. And it's 2020, and I'm supposed to think about health at the beginning of the year. I think that's what you're supposed to do. And then so I'm doing it. And as I think about health, and I think about a slimmer Nate, and a healthier Nate going into 2020, um, Part of what motivates me, maybe primarily what motivates me, and I have to keep this before me to stay motivated, is I want to be healthy so that I can freely do things with my physical body that might now be difficult. And I see people who don't take care of their physical bodies, who are severely limited in their freedoms, what they and I go, And so I better, I better think about that. You, you see how deeply this subject runs? And, and why, as some have said, that freedom is really now the only primary virtue in the U.S. It's kind of the thing that actually holds us together. 
is we all just want to be able to do whatever it is we want to do the best we can do it whenever we'd like to. Now, in in thinking through this and in reflecting on John chapter 8, and I think where these Jews, as they're responding to Jesus and recognizing that there is... um, there's, there's power, there's freedom, there's opportunity because, well, we come from great stock. We come from an incredible spiritual lineage. No slavery to worry about. That, that thinking, in some ways, is both encouraging because we should be thankful for the gift of spiritual lineage and, and heritage and completely off-center and has completely missed the boat. It's missed the boat so clearly by an obvious recognition. The one who is the fulfillment of the entirety of the promises of Abraham and his line is before them, and they're rejecting him. So they've clearly missed the boat. And yet they're looking back to a golden age and the great legacy of their spiritual heritage, and they're missing the very heart and substance of their faith. Because their form of freedom had actually become not the message and the promises of Abraham. It had become pride in an earthly thing. Pride in an earthly thing. Pride in their legacy. Pride in their heritage. It was about being descendants of Abraham. It wasn't about the promise of Abraham and its fulfillment that was to go to all of the nations. I mean, they weren't God-forsaken Gentiles like you and I. They were Jews. And this is where I think D.A. Carson is onto something in his commentary on, on John. He says the problem really arises not in the gift of a spiritual legacy, not in being sons and daughters of Abraham. That's wonderful in and of itself, insofar as it goes. He says well, the problem is enslaving devotion to a creaturely thing rather than the Creator. He's pointing to idolatry. They have taken a good thing and they have said this is what's most important. This is what's most important. I'm going to serve this. They've taken education. And they've said, if I don't get into the school that I need to get into and get the grades that I get to get the grades and get the degree that I get the degree, then I, I'm just, it's not going to matter. Life, life is over. Because all of, everything's bound up in that. If I, if I don't maintain health and look a certain way or, or feel a certain way and are able to accomplish certain things, then... then then, I, then life is not even going to be worth living. I'm, it, it's going to be terrible. It's one thing to want those things, to value them as good gifts from the Lord, and to recognize they come and they go. You know, education is a wonderful thing, and one day you're going to die, and it doesn't matter. Health is a great thing. One day you're going to die, and it's going to disappear. Your health is going to go. You notice this is kind of a universal principle. We have a lot of evidence. And it's still a good thing to pursue, but there's also recognition. If you're putting all your eggs in that basket, that basket breaks. It falls through. If freedom is there, if fulfillment and identity and satisfaction are there, it's going to let you down. It's going to ultimately break you. It's going to ultimately break you. Because I think here's the lie often as we're running through the rat race of life is we're going to look to these good things... Achievements, social connections, 
Accumulation of money and possessions, recognition, a happy home life. These are all great things. In and of themselves, they're fine. They're gifts from the Lord held in the right position. But when we believe the lie that if we get enough of them, our heart's going to be free and our life's going to be great. And everything's going to come together. It's going to destroy us. Because that's a taskmaster that will break you. That's a master that will never... Never be able to pick you up when you fall. Forgive you when you fail. Love you when you're down. Stand at your bedside when you die. That destroys you. These things, if you give your life to them, these masters ultimately destroy you. They're, they're brutal. And, and I think in many cases, what I see, what I'm experiencing in, in, in terms of pastoral ministry, but also just watching our culture, is we've got more stuff, right? We've got more, I mean, today I could go to a massage therapist and a, simultaneously a chiropractor and get acupuncture and be on a nutritionist diet and find a massage chair, you know, that I could take home and be completely at dis-ease. That, that's the concern. That is more availability of all kinds of things and yet more anxious, more frustrated, less joy as depression rates go up, as suicides are at an all-time high. You have to begin to ask yourself, why is that happening? Where, where is that coming from? It comes when we make masters of things that ought to be servants. It comes when we take a created good and we try to make it an ultimate thing to serve. Now, if any of this feels familiar, keep listening, okay? And I think point two really drives us to what Jesus wants us to see today as we kind of close our time together. And that's secondly, the one truth that will set you free. Okay, if this is the lie that we tend to believe about freedom, then what is this one truth that will set you free? Um, when Jesus is speaking to them here in this passage, he doesn't directly define the truth, right? I mean, that, that's kind of the $64,000 question of the passage. So what is the truth that sets you free? He says, the truth will set you free. G great. What truth? That should be on the tip of your tongue as you're thinking about John chapter 8. What is the truth that is going to set us free? Well, well Jesus actually goes on to kind of tip his hat in such a way that helps us read back upon that verse and get a clearer picture of what it is he's talking about. Look at the analogy he gives us in verse 34. After they asked the question, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. All right, now, okay, Jesus, let me, get, let me hear you here. You've told me that the truth sets me free, and then two verses later, you tell me that the Son sets me free. Yes. That's it. The truth that sets you free is the truth about the Son, who this Son is. 
that owns this house of which the slave doesn't have a room permanently and only sons have rooms permanently within this house. Who's the son? It's the truth of the son. Whoever the son is in the context of this, that's where the key is in terms of the passage. It's very clear from John chapter 8 that Jesus is, of course, talking about himself. He is, as John told us in John chapter 1, the word made flesh. He is the truth of God come down to us to earth. He is the word of God. And he is, as John tells us in John 1.14, full of grace and what? Truth. He's full of truth. He's come to tell us that which is true. That's actually the goal of what Jesus has come to accomplish. This truth that says is free is bound up in this person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it is that he has actually come to do. Well, what's he come to do? That's the big question. How do we understand his mission and his accomplishment? Well, if we dial it back for just a moment and realize that this son, if we're reading from the beginning of John chapter 1, this is the son who spoke all of creation into being. This is the word that holds the sun, the moon, the stars in their orbit. Right, right now binds the atoms and molecules together so they don't fly off in a million directions. This is the son who is an absolute master. He is an absolute master. He is the, he is the most powerful. He is the most authoritative. He is the one that we might call the most, the highest rightful authority. If anyone is due authority and service and worship to him or to anything, it's to him. Because he is the one who rules over all. That's who Jesus is. That's the son that's speaking to them in this moment. Now think about what that son does. That son who we just sang about in And Can It Be, so free, so infinite. What is the word infinite? Measureless. It's boundless. There's no way it can be contained. There's no way it can be restricted. This son has come in love to a people who are utterly bound in sin who have constantly given their worship away to things that aren't worthy of, of, of their worship. And this son has come, not as he could, to crush them like unworthy slaves and kick them out of the house. That's how it works for slaves. They're great until they quit doing what you tell them to do. You work according to a law. You work according to a job. That's what every other master in this world looks like and feels like if you're not walking in the freedom of the Father in the gospel. It feels to you like, I gotta keep on this hamster wheel. I gotta keep doing this thing. I gotta keep getting these, these things. That's what it feels like. The one in whom should come and kick us out of the house is the one who's coming in this moment and says, I'm actually here to give you total freedom. If you can hear what Jesus is saying 
And you can hear it in the unfolding of the New Testament. He's saying, I've come to turn you from a slave into a son. And here's what's interesting. If you're a son, even when you're terrible, you still get a room. Because you're the son. I've come to give you rights to my home. I've come to give you privileges. Not as a slave, but as a son. I've come to break the power of the slavery over you. I've come to make you my children and adopt you into my kingdom. I've come to go prepare a place for you. Of, of a mansion with many rooms where you can dwell with me. They should have been kicked out and fired. But he's come to actually say, I want to make you my son. I want to make you my daughter. It's an incredible picture of grace. And we think, oh, that's amazing. They don't deserve it. No, they don't deserve it. How in the world is he going to make that happen? Here's what's remarkable. Is the one who's a son willingly becomes the slave for you. And takes on all your bondage. Why do you think they nail him to a cross? The limitless, free, infinite Son of God is constructed to a nailed piece of wood in the Middle East in order to break the slavery over you and over me, the sin that we have given into, the penalty that must be paid, and praise be to God, the power of sin ruling and reigning in our hearts, increasingly to give us over to the freedom of one who now knows themselves to be sons and daughters, not of Abraham in a physical way, but of Jesus, the Son of God, spiritually by faith. This is why Paul in Galatians is going to say to you, listen, the real son of Abraham is not any of the descendants that came. You know who the real son of Abraham is? It's not offsprings. It's offspring. It's Jesus. He's the one son of Abraham. And because he's over the whole house, he can let anyone else in that he desires. He can free us and make us a part of his family. And that can become the leading reality of how you understand yourself, how you live and move and have your being in this world, how you relate to one another. And all of a sudden you begin to see why Charles Wesley can write, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. You can see why he wrote that. Now what would it be like if in the year to come, that wasn't just a fleeting moment of ecstasy on a Sunday morning two or three times this year, or in a Sunday school class, or in a devotion, or at a big conference, what if that began to be an operating foundation for the way you did Tuesday afternoons and every other day of the week, where the freedom of who you are in Christ becomes the operating center for your existence. That's what we're pressing towards as a congregation. That's what we're asking the Lord to do increasingly, individually and corporately. That the world would so see a freedom that is not of this world and that has broken into this world in the lives of Christ's people that it would know that the freedom it has opted for is nothing but bondage. But the freedom that Christ offers is freedom indeed. Indeed.
Now that means a whole lot of things, which is why next week we're going to talk about the fact that this gospel truth about who we are and our identity in Christ and the freedom that's been granted to us has a path that it walks. And it may not look like the path that you thought it would look like, but I trust you. You can trust me. You can trust the word. He's going to show you the path of freedom. And he's going to show you your freedom partners that you walk with, that you live with, that remind you of who you are in Christ and press you on to a freer existence in Christ together. What I would like to ask of you as we move into 2020 together is will you pray to that end? Will you pray to that end? As we go through these first three weeks in 2020, where there is something by virtue of a calendar page, which in and of itself is not very powerful. But if a God who meets us where he promises his grace is new every day and in every year is extremely powerful. If we together collectively pray towards these ends, here's what I know is true. It is right to the center of God's heart for us. And he loves to answer prayers that are near and dear to his heart. Pray that we would become the people who are so free that the world will not mistake worldly freedom for freedom anymore, but will know it as bondage and will come running to Jesus. Father in heaven, we would ask you to pray for us or intercede for us in our prayers and listen to the Holy Spirit as we pray. Listen to him because he has groanings that are deeper than words of any things that we can say. And we know that his prayers are better than ours. And he corrects anything that we don't understand. And so we would ask you, listen to him and answer his prayers. And take us to where it is that you would like us to be. Make 2020 marked by the freedom that is found in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.